You're listening to the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast. I'm Michelle Duncan. Andrew isn't here today, so it's just me recording this introduction. How badly could it go? I'm sure it'll be fine. This is episode two of season three. And in this episode, Andrew is chatting to Rosie Carrick, who is a writer, a performer, a compare, and also a translator. And the conversation just ranges from everything from poetry to writing to Russian to time travel and even to what Rosie is currently working on, which is a new project called Muscle Bound. Muscle Bound has some adult themes. I think it's safe to say. So this is possibly an episode where you listen to it on your headphones and possibly for adult ears only. It was wonderful to catch up with Rosie and listen to her discuss the ideas and the concepts and the meaning behind her work. I think it's time we had a listen. Bye. Hello, uh, let's start with this. Who are you and what do you do? I am Rosie Carrick. I'm a writer and performer and translator and compare and pervert. <laughs> Which one should we go for first? Um, <laughs> how many languages do you translate? I only translate from Russian, although I speak French as well. And some of the Russian I'm going to be translating in the next bit of time I've got in French at the moment because they've never been translated into English, so it's quite handy to um, have the double-pronged attack to start from, you know. Now, there's a particular reason, I guess, why you translate uh, Russian. Um, I'm going to pronounce his name incorrectly, I feel. Vladimir Mayovsky. Yeah, you did pronounce I did, it incorrectly. Well, done. Uh, well, well, done but, well, it's Mayakovsky, so almost right. Okay. So a couple of the letters the wrong way around. I get that a lot, even with Think my... Think of Maya Angelou, but Kovsky, except it's all a surname for him. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> what, what comes first, the Russian or the want or need to translate his work? Uh, the second one. I, I learnt Russian because I sort of read his poetry and was like, oh my God, you're, I love you. I find that really fascinating in itself that um, to enjoy the poetry anyway but then go to the source language and teach yourself the language because of that yeah if you don't take me wrong I wouldn't do it ordinarily but I, when I read this poem of his A Cloud in Trousers it's this long 30 page completely crazy passionate um, glorious poem I was just like oh my god what the hell is this what am I reading it was just so kind of all over the place, I was going to say, but it, but but more kind of considered than that. But so bursting out of itself and tender and beautiful, and I, and also just so crazy that so the language was so singular in English. I thought, how on earth could a translator have come to this? And so then I looked up who Mayakovsky was. I'd never heard of him before, and um, then read another translation of the same poem, and it was completely different. I was like, this is mad. <laughs> was it completely different in a way that was less alluring? Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, this first translation by a guy called George Hyde, who is now in his sort of late 70s, living in Norwich, I stalked him, he's friends with me now, and um, he is, he's, you know, he really loves that sort of passionate, exuberant side of Mayakovsky, so he really is at pains to work out how to recreate the sense of something in Russian that there isn't an equivalent for in English, into the nearest... Uh, appropriate thing that kind of gives the same has this makes you have the same effect reading it at the same time as being similar in language whereas a lot of 
or some other translators just sort of tr try and translate as literally as possible so that the word might be nearer the same thing but it doesn't have doesn't produce the same effect in you when you're reading it so there might be a sense that in order to for him and for yourself to translate something successfully you might not yeah literally be translating the words direct to english you'll be following the theme and the idea of that line not to sort of rewrite it but just mm. to that there's a bit more freedom there? Yeah, I guess it's like, yeah, it is like a rewriting, really, you're writing something new and sort of carrying on a conversation, I think. And carrying on a conversation with other translators as well. They, the, when this book that I put together, Vologia, what I, that's the first time that different translators of Mayakovsky have sort of existed side by side in the same volume. And obviously it's not like the same poem <laughs> translated over and over again, although there is a section where I talk about the way that a different few lines have been translated in various, quite different ways by different translators for their different reasons. But, but to see different approaches, some, of, some translators are very keen to have a sort of to emphasise Mayakovsky's political um, position in Soviet Russia and some are keen to emphasise his sort of very avant-garde formalist qualities and so on. So they kind of, you know, it's like uh, if you're describing a person, you know, what do you, are you more likely to describe their character or the way they look or whatever? Um, so, yeah, so I just find it really interesting. So to so follow that line that you were talking about, about the um, passage that you wrote, is it possible then that there will be in a single line of poetry, the same line might be translated different ways depending on what that translator is bringing with, with them, what political climate they, they're existing in, what um, sort of person they are. Yeah, definitely. The, um, Mayakovsky's main first translator, Herbert Marshall, was a socialist and very kind of heavy on emphasizing you know not not really that interested in the kind of crazy language and sort of linguistic style but but really just loved Mayakovsky as a Soviet poet and so the translations are a little bit more clunky um not doesn't have he's not a poet himself so doesn't have that kind of style um whereas someone like Edwin Morgan the Scottish poet who writes who did a lot of writing in Lalland Scots he translated in fact in fact maybe he didn't write in Lalland Scots himself maybe he just did Mayakovsky's poetry in Lalland Scots but that is more a sort of um a written language rather than a verbal one and has its own dictionary and you really get when you read that you get this sort of sense of alienation that you get with Mayakovsky reading it because or that Mayakovsky wanted to produce in his original to sort of make draw attention to language and make it a weird experience yeah. even if you're in the language that you're reading you know where did you discover or when did you discover Vladimir uh, I discovered him I was doing an MA at Sussex University and one of the and one of the modules I was doing not by choice actually either <laughs> uh, was a Marxism module and it was so interesting I just didn't really know anything about Marxism before that and Mayakovsky being a Marxist poet was was on that course and of the whole of the MA which is very interesting it's various ways that reading of Mayakovsky you know I'd written poetry myself since I was seven and that and I'd done a my undergraduate degree in literature and and this this degree was in critical theory and literature and yeah it was the first time I'd ever read anything that had such a massively visceral effect on me and so um yeah, I was like, who is this guy? It sounds like a beautifully <laughs> cliched idea of a student at a university <laughs> discovering a poet that has existed before her and it being a whole new doorway mm. into a whole... What's been, arguably, a, a big part of your life ever since. Uh, I just feel like that's a quite... Maybe, I'm, maybe I am romanticising a little, but that, that, that feels like it's a very... Yeah, 
in a, in a positive sense, a cliched moment of a university student discovering something. Yeah, I think, I mean, I do kind of go in hard as well when I fall in love with something or someone. And so I think that, um, yeah, it was really great to be able to be become obsessed with him and this sort of tragic, wonderful, exhilarating life that he lived. And, you know, you know he killed himself when he was 36. And, um, and so just there's something about discovering someone and feeling so passionate about it and then discovering that actually they've been dead for so, so yes. many years and 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 so to be able to kind of feed this sort of huge interest and be encouraged to do a PhD on him which I did was just great because then I can you know make it my job to be a you know a nerd yes many people sort of find the same way when they sort of they suddenly hear, hear Jeff Buckley or somebody for the first time they go what look he, he's he's dead mm. oh the back catalogue. Yeah. <laughs> you said you were writing poetry since the age of seven. Mm. Um, this might be the same answer. How long have you been a poet? Uh, since the well, I would say partly since the age of seven. Even even when I first started, I really kind of valued it, and I made little. I on a typewriter, I made little notes, yeah. little books. I mean, and you know, poems by Rosie Lever, aged whatever. Um, and was really proud of them. Yeah. But I, when I was in Aberystwyth, where I did my undergraduate degree, I went to this poetry workshop with this guy, Robert Minhinick, and um, and he was like, "So, guys, you know, what do you want to do with your poetry?" You know, it was, it was I was at university about there, but this workshop was just a random thing that happened to be in the town. And I was like, oh, well, I kind of, in an ideal world, I didn't, didn't do any sort of public poetry at that time, just wrote it for myself. I was like, in an ideal world, I'd really like to read poems in, like, the downstairs of jo smoky jazz clubs on a Thursday night in some grotty place. And, yeah, and he was like, I mean, this was kind of before, this whole sort of performance poetry scene now is massive. It just didn't really exist there. I didn't really know any of, well, of course it existed, but I didn't, yes. I didn't know anything of it. It certainly wasn't such a big kind of career-oriented thing as it seems to be now. Um, but he, his response, I was thought I was just being kind of silly, but his response was like, oh, that's great. Yeah, you should definitely do that. Yeah. I was like, oh. And then I just kind of, yeah, started looking into things. And from 2003 is when I first performed, you know, was booked to perform at something and got involved in a slam and won it. And yeah went did interviews on the radio and that sort of stuff and it just sort of carried on from there and it sounds like that something like that from somebody who is a, a, a tutor or a mentor type person of giving giving one permission to go no no that, that's a that's valid that's a thing mm. is really powerful yeah because you you know particular stuff like writing uh, probably the same now i mean with art as well i think whenever anyone would say oh, what do you want to do when you grow up oh you know i want to be a poet Oh, yeah, but I mean, for your real work. <laughs> and so I'm happy to say I've never had a real job. I mean, the odd one here and there where necessary, but all of my... I've only ever done work that is based on something I've wanted to do and that's been to do with writing. So, so yeah, suck it to them, <laughs> careers advisors. <laughs> Going back to him, I, I don't know if you were quoting him verbatim, but even just the, the, that sentence of what do you want to do with your poetry, mm. of it being a, a, a tool, a thing that you can use rather than be a hobby, that that's, seems quite powerful. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what he said. I mean, obviously it was some time ago, but yeah, he was sort of, you know, we were all there at the workshop because we were interested in writing poetry yeah. and, yeah, wanted to know what, yeah, what we wanted to do with it. So you were, you've who have made it a career you're doing talks and lectures um what, what what do you talk and what do you lecture about Ooh, 
all kinds of things. Um, I I do I teach do some teaching at Brighton University. I used to do some teaching at Sussex when I was doing my PhD there. Now I teach on the creative writing course a bit at Brighton. Um, I find it quite boring to be honest. I mean, it's why, like, is it? <laughs> why is it boring? Yeah. I well. When I was doing my PhD, of course, everyone was like, oh, yeah, you're going to teach after that. And I was like, I don't know, maybe I am, am I? And because I was just kind of doing it for fun, really. Um, if fun is the right word. <laughs> um, Demoralising, gut-wrenching fun. Um, and it got to the end and I thought, oh, maybe, what will I do now? Maybe I will do some teaching. But I, and I had been doing some anyway, but I just... Um, get sucked into a particular way of thinking there and it's very career-oriented and... I just want to have fun, you know. You have to sort of do the same thing several times in a row. Yeah. Um, I don't like that. Um, also, having said that, just coming to the end of a year and a half long tour of Passionate Machine. Um, so, uh, so yeah, perhaps I'll go on to do that in the future. I really love the bits of teaching that I do now at Brighton. That suits me very well. I, do, I just do like four or five weeks. I also do some... You know, the odd, I'm a writer in poet in residence at Hertwood House, sixth form, which is like a really arty, fancy boarding school, which is again lovely. But other than that, all the stuff I do is sort of one off. Give, do lots of hosting of interesting events. I hosted the Brighton Women's Centre inaugural conference a couple of weeks ago and uh, gave a talk about to, uh, the, my old school, a girls' school, on, you know. Mostly on how to stalk people, actually. I don't think it was quite what they had in mind. Um, and, you know, give talks on, on Mayakovsky and other stuff at conferences and just perform my own work and do yeah, stuff like that. You were curating, leading a hammer and tongue uh, for seven years? Yes, something like that. So uh, remind us, uh, if we haven't heard of it, what hammer and tongue is, was. Yeah, hammer and tongue is a... Um, performance poetry event that happens at Comedia um, still goes on now, run by Mike Parker and it's part of a network now of them, it started in uh, Cambridge or Oxford, oh gosh one or the other, then moved to Brighton because the guy happened to move here, so there's a few um, and it's yeah, just sort of performance poetry um, it's a great night, big part of Brighton culture um, and, but I just had done it for seven years, had enough of it you know, yeah. and I also compare the poetry stage at Glastonbury Festival and co-curate the poetry stage at Port Elliot Festival. Well, that festival actually stopped this year. Nothing to do with me, I host Interred. <laughs> <laughs> Not officially, anyway. Um, so, and at Latitude, I um, compared the poetry stage there for 10 years until it sort of merged with the literary, with the literary stage a couple of years ago. So it's nice to, to be honest, I don't write that much poetry anymore. I, when I first started, when I was a child, it was very much, and and, and as a growing up as well, it was very much because um, I was just really bad at talking about stuff, and I found it, it was a, it was my only way of articulating things that I couldn't articulate very well, and and uh, through the through the great powers of years and years of therapy. <laughs> I've just become too good at communicating and now <laughs> so now and I just sort of and it feels I felt a bit limited in what I could do with it as well I think I could sort of which is why I you know and I've and I just like to be doing different things at one time yeah. so the PhD obviously and translation is a very different form of writing and 
live sort of extended live shows like the like Passionate Machine which was 70 minutes and this next thing I'm working on Muscle Bound I just like it's just nicer to be able to go into things in a bit more depth yeah. and um, yeah create a bigger narrative more complex narrative and and um Passion Machine is a complex narrative. I'd caught it not earlier in its run, but it was already well in. I'd missed it at Brighton because I think our shows clashed. Mm. I caught it in Edinburgh, and that was the first time I'd seen you on the stage, and so I didn't know you. I had no sort of background to um, gaun- gauge my reaction on. And what I was fascinated by was that was that communication of how believable the narrative was or at least that the person I was watching on the stage believed all of it and so there were moments because there are elements of that story that are clearly undeniably true Mm. and there are elements of that story that are very likely fabrication and even now a year later I can't say they are fabrication (laughs) because of that sort of belief from that central character which is a Rosie Carrick on stage where there are parts of it that are doubting it, but did that happen? Was she communicated? <laughs> so I found that really compelling uh, to watch. How long did it take to pull those threads together? Uh, well, I started writing this. So in the show, I talk about how they. I talk about the um, how I came to start making the time machine and about my conversation with my friend James and wanting to go back and rescue Mayakovsky and so on. And actually that all of that stuff was actually true for the making of the show, you know, as well. That that conversation, you know, so I, so a few years earlier when I'd been doing my PhD, I had this idea, and I love time travel, you know, I just love sci-fi and crazy impossible time loops and all that jazz. And so, um, so I'd had this sort of thinking about this in my brain, uh, and I, in 2015... Uh, must have been 2015 I think maybe the start of that I was thinking about it even more I thought about this idea for a show um, but I wanted to wait until I'd finished my PhD before I made it but I started but I thought I'm going to start writing these time travel blogs in the meantime because I really wanted to get a good feed in because I think the the magic of time travel is being able to is being in the present and having something from the past or the future having this temporal framework and I thought well if I can't start actively doing it now I can start putting these things into place now um and so and so the blogs I mean the writing of the blogs was really to give myself a vehicle to then talk about some of the mad stuff that happens later on in the blog cycle but it also allowed me to start just sort of writing down some some interesting things about time travel and everyday time travel that we don't that we kind of take for granted you know like writing notes to our future selves you know um I'm doing this and the, the phone can't can't see it um, uh, yeah going to sleep is cryogenic freezing and that kind of thing um, but even then I did a work in progress version of it um, just to sort of read through in the fringe in 2017 which was which was essentially just a kind of tagging together and editing down of the blog so it didn't really have much in the way of narrative structure and if, I don't know if you've seen the blogs but there's a lot of stuff that isn't in there that's in the show and likewise some stuff in there that isn't in the show um, and then I started and then I, I started working with Katie Bonner this incredible director and writer and she and I went to her with what I thought was a finished script and she just was like, okay, let's just break this down. I'd never written anything for theatre before. And so it was, so I, 
very long-winded answer to quite a simple question, but um, but the a lot of the stuff I, I, when I went into it, I was thinking I love time travel, I love Mayakovsky, I run, a, I want to write a kind of weird, intricate back and forth thing about these two things. What the show ended up being, of course, is had had a lot to do with self-care and self-determination and tapped into some quite personal things that I hadn't actually ever spoken about before and which felt quite scary to speak about and um, and so it was I didn't even realise myself what it was until quite near the end yeah. so there were certain quite significant elements of the show which just hadn't been in there till really yeah. till yeah so quite terrifying really that in some in some parallel universe there was this much crapper version <laughs> I do like the idea of a time travel narrative being about self-determination. Um, it's one of those things that, like um, elements of the show itself, that when once they've been presented, that seems to the audience quite clear-eyed. And, well, of course. But before it's been stated, it's not necessarily obvious. Mm. Um, much like recently watching, of all things, um, the latest... Or no, the the second Jumanji movie, mm. and they talk about um, the fear of um, being careful in in the game because you might sort of, it might cost you a life. Mm. And somebody sort of points out, well, that's what happens in real life too. Yeah, and it's just a really nice sort of. I, I like it when theme and fantastical are the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, you speak a little bit in Passion Machine about your favourite elements of time travel um, pop culture and films um, what, what, today what are they? Today what are my what's my favourite pop culture and films? In, in terms of time travel Oh in terms and, of yeah. time travel um, ooh, well I love the film Primer oh, yeah. have you seen it? I don't think, no I haven't Oh, um, I, I'd recommend watching it but you have to watch it several times just to sort of get your head around it, it's quite short it's like maybe 70 minutes and it's made on a super low budget by these like three sort of geeky guys. And if you, you can go online and look at these graphs of what people think is happening or where, or where the kind of, it just blows your mind, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's really simple. Um, it's, the sets are all really small, but yeah, in terms of that kind of time loop and thinking, oh my God, sort of getting to the end and thinking, what the fuck just happened yeah, there? Yeah. Um, very confusing and interesting and unlike other stuff because um, because it's not interested in in the, the the results of time travel which I think I suppose is partly what I was inter- wanted to do with Passionate Machine is that often a time travel or sci-fi narrative has kind of it's about some sort of dystopian future yeah. or needing to go back and obviously the kind of premise of Passionate Machine is about going back to do something but to kind of have it all in the real world sort of around sort of picking your child up from school and that sort of thing mm. was quite interesting to me um, I love the film Safety Not Guaranteed I don't think I know that oh god it is so it makes me cry at the end and in fact I think that um, I watched I'd started making Passionate Machine before I watched it and then someone recommended it to me because I was talking about time travel because I hadn't seen it either it's on Netflix yeah um, but there are some similarities. I think that now, if you if you watch it, which I highly recommend, you'll be like, "Hey, is this what Rosie was doing?" Um, but yeah, but that, that starts out. Oh, and no, in fact, the, the so in Passionate Machine, I put an ad on Gumtree. You know, this is the help I need, and the the, the starting gambit in Safety Not Guaranteed is. Um, 
this local newspaper sees an ad saying, you know, helper needed, yeah. time travel mission, only tried this once before, safety not guaranteed. And it's just in the personals. And apparently in real life, it's based on something that someone saw and lots of blah, 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 whatever. Um, it's just so beautiful. It's, it's really, really intriguing. And you're, you know, right up to the final minutes, you don't know. And also that the main guy has a fake ear in it, which is just never commented on. <laughs> it's so weird. Uh, or maybe one time the, the, the woman sort of knocks it off and it falls off and he's like really self-conscious about it and she sort of hands it back. <laughs> But it's never, but it's never commented on. That's it never comes up again. Just these like tiny details. I love that um, a, a meme at the moment, or not quite a meme, but a photo being shared of a, a blue plaque uh, for the inventor of time travel who <laughs> lived here from yeah. 2099 <laughs> to Hobbes. Yeah. It's cute. Yeah, I speaking that. online, speaking about that online, um, <coughs> a, a Patrick Swayze fan. Mm. He was speaking about a. Patrick Swayze film that you, you, you couldn't even finish. It just wasn't good. Yeah, so bad. Yeah. Um, are there time travel films that you want to like more yes. than there are, their promise or that you wanted to? There are two time travel films that are really bad. One I did watch the end of, but I regretted it. The other one I couldn't carry on. And the first of those is Hot Tub Time Machine. Oh. Extremely misogynistic, racist piece of shit. So it's got a sequel? Yeah, I didn't watch that. I've had my fill by then. And the other one, and I hope he doesn't ever hear me say this because he's a nice man but is um the film about time by richard curtis uh. the premise of which is that all the male members of this particular family on their 18th birthday get a, the gift of being able to travel through time which they use to um manipulate women into getting together with them even though so so it's this 18 year old guy on his 18th birthday uh, I've been trying it on with some woman who just clearly ain't having any of it and his dad Bill Nye ushers him and you go, you go into a wardrobe and when you come out the wardrobe you've gone back in time so you can carry on keep on manipulating manipulating it's so awful couldn't carry on watching it I mean you know arguably Groundhog Day does the same thing but in Groundhog Day he, it's all about him learning about himself and sure he asks that woman what the mum's name is or whatever question yeah. he asks so we can give her the detail the next day and and so on but he has to become a better person in, and sort of give up on that in order to be recognised and, and so on whereas well hey maybe the same thing happens in about time I didn't bother finding out but from what I've heard from other people who walked out of the cinema when they went to see it uh, it yeah I guess the difference also is who you're going to match up against people like Bill Murray because if you've got something like Sigourney Weaver or Annie McDowell, who isn't universally popular, but the character certainly is, mm. she matches him at every point. Yeah. Um, and so while, yeah, I think it is arguably true that he spends about a thousand years, but he puts the work, that is, that's also valid, he puts the mm. work in over a thousand years to his manipulation. And, he, and he's, and yeah, and, and through, and he's not always trying to manipulate, he's sort of trying to pass the time, isn't he? And in doing so, he learns that he, he learns to be a better person. Yeah. And I, and I, think that as with all those kind of tropes of the Richard Curtis film it's all about men women winning uh, winning women and women eventually going along with it because that's their role and that pisses me off and I think that's something that I've really liked about Passionate Machine is it's such a male heavy genre sci-fi and 
it's just nice to, you know, be given another voice to it. And I've had a lot of shit from guys on the internet, you know, particularly when I started sharing my blog and sharing this letter that's in the show, you know, that I received from my future self. Um, Some, you know, a lot of people took it in the spirit of fun. Some people, whether they took it in the spirit of fun or not, were like, as if you'd know anything about this. You know, you, you are such a fucking piece of shit. Oh, have you seen who this is? Yeah, fu- uh, you know, just really kind of, st- some, some more kind of aggressive than other, but, um, and some people getting very angry that I was, I was, you know, lying about certain things and, and how dare I try and trick people into, I was like, mate, A, I ain't trying to trick anyone. This is all perfectly true, obviously. <laughs> and B, the very, the very genre, you know, the very concept of time travel is a literary, genre, you know, literary yeah. conceit, and 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 the science has followed the literature, you know. Something I love about reaching the twenty first of October, twenty fifteen, Future Day, no. is that you know Nike made the self tying shoelaces. You know, I love the the idea that the fiction comes first, and then we scrabble to to make it true. Um, it's really cool, and that's what being inventive and you know creative should be about. Not fucking shouting people down because what they're saying might not be the case yet. I mean, we we are, we are already aware that the the male fans of um, genre TV and fiction are notoriously a forgiving and understanding lot. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting to see that they have the the same reactions and same feedback when the product is or the piece of work is is un- undeniably yours mm. it's not like you've taken it from yeah. anybody else or you've rewritten it or gender flipped it it, it, it is your creation yeah just, well I, I'm trying to say this for a ton of surprise but we're not you, you're still getting feedback yeah <laughs> um, but so this actually I didn't intend to go into it on this way but why not you might get some of the feedback for muscle bound then Particularly as, as, uh, as you're, this isn't the correct word, but unashamed about the eroticising of it as well. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I've been obsessed ever since I was a young child. Well, particularly when I was a young child. I had some years where the obsession kind of eased off when I was more interested in androgynous kind of guys. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, but really ever since I was a young child, I've been obsessed with watching muscle-bound men being tortured in eroticised ways by other men in in kind of sort of mainstream culture, i.e. culture that isn't trying to make it into pornography, that kind of there's this sort of strange, contradictory thing being presented where it's this hyper-macho scene, um, but, but a scene that is just opening it up, up to sort of, you know, wild, you know, um, oiled up, definitely, you know, undoubtedly homoerotic objectification. Really, the politics around it are so interesting, and and it's kind of you know, and, and these films were made during such a macho era that it's like they were they were completely blind to the fact that this is what they were doing because you know these films were made by men, starring men, designed for a straight male audience, and yet this kind of gloriously homoerotic filth oh my god it's amazing and so you know and these were just completely normalized so I'd grow up as a young child you know my parents broke up when I was 10 I went to a friend's house they taped Conan the Barbarian for me knowing how much I loved Arnold Schwarzenegger and they were like this like dedicated you know 
poor mother fast forwarding through all the kissing and rolling as she called it um, all the sex scenes but thinking nothing of, of letting me watch him you know push the wheel of pain or you know be crucified and and so on um uh, which were the parts that you know i went to a catholic primary school you know so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so jesus on the cross i i could hear the story of jesus being flogged as many times as it was taught to me going to confession hearing about samson being abused having his hair cut off all wonderful to me on the day of recording this we've just seen the trailer for the new netflix series messiah drop and i and i don't know if there'll be um because it's set in modern days uh, i don't know if there'll be a a modern flogging scene but the general reaction to messiah from the internet has been why do you have to keep casting jesus as hot <laughs> that sort of thing of, uh, of that sort of like objectification of the messiah yeah um, and there's definitely a subset of, you know, in lethal weapon type films, etc., where there is, yeah, the stripped down to the waist mm. uh, lead, chained up with normal, normal sort of electricity, sort of wet, wet plate? No. <laughs> uh, uh, torture. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the kind of, the, the kind of trajectory of torture is very interesting because there's always, they take their lead often from the kind of, 1950s sword and sandal films the sort of Hercules and so and those kind of epics which are always obviously feature a good flogging and that kind of thing and in chains always and then there was that trend in the 70s for quicksand although that didn't tend to be with the muscle bound guys so much but then yeah the flogging came back and yeah, the electrocution that, the electrocution scene in Rambo First Blood Part 2 real nice and even in Tango and Cash the last film to be released in the 1980s and uh the film angers a lot of people, but I love it. Um, Danny, no, not Danny DeVito. <laughs> Danny DeVito. <laughs> that would be an interesting film. film. <laughs> um, I want to see that film. <laughs> yeah, me too. But I think I would be troubled by it. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell, who obviously isn't a typical uh, tortured beefcake dude, but yeah, good torture, good uh, electrocution scene in that as well. But. Um, yeah, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger really started it with, with Conan in 1982 and, um, and He-Man. I mean, Dolph Lundgren, I think... I mean, Dolph Lundgren actually went on in the 90s to start in, an, in, a, in kind of an actual softcore S&M film. You know, the tagline is like, you know, an ex-cop is forced to go undercover into the seedy world of S&M to, you know, avenge his dead brother or some tenuous crap. Yeah. Uh, Marvellous. Which is presumably why um, Musclebound, you're exploring the, the three Bs, the um, bodybuilders, beefcake and BDSM. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, that's a jolly good point. I Because that is, I've sort of changed, so I wrote, that's, that was my kind of, the three Bs were there when I was sort of thinking about this earlier in the year. And I've kind of changed the angle of it a lot more now. Uh, it's something that I'm really interested in it with Musclebound is partly my own kind of just perverse interest what, what, why I sort of loved it so much as a child and, and now and, and what the sort of politics around it are why it fell out of fashion but also um, in a broader sense just the way uh, running parallel to that you know I'm very interested in the ways that culture sort of, the sort of mass culture we consume really dictates what we think of as being our erotic interests and and so you know to go back to the Richard Curtis film you know women ubiquitously being represented as um, objects of desire rather than agents of desire in films and 
and men being kind of sort of you know aggressively proactive in the way that they get women and those kind of films being very macho um and the way that that translates into real life sexual relations you know i spent a lot of my sexual life going having sexual experiences and thinking this ain't doing nothing for me you know and and because nothing i'd ever seen in the films which for me at least was my only form of education sexual education had anything to do with anything i was actually interested in or anything that was would physically make a diff, you know m- make me have an orgasm or make me have a nice time and so there's a massive amount of relearning and unlearning to do for men and women but particularly for women i think just to get back to a base level where you're having the experience you want to have and so to start off with uh these kind of films where it's very irregular for men to be um the kind of objects of desire or not the objects of desire but but to be so openly objectified in this way um is my kind of way in to to looking at why yeah uh, the sort of politics around um objectification and desire and how to kind of get out of that and yeah delve into your own niche interests i guess <laughs> and there is something that's quite era era centric about that in the same way this is a bit of a tenuous link but in the same way that arguably bicycles gave women sort of um much more freedom mm. it seems to me that the idea that these films are available on home video mm. and therefore can be accessed at any time that gives a, a lot of, much more access and agency over yeah, exploring one's own sexuality and again and again mm, yeah yeah exactly um, I mean the, stri- the weird thing that I find interesting about those videos in particular that I'm interested in is that uh, they, they never really include any women in them when I asked Dolph Lundgren about what his favourite torture scene in a film was, he said, mm, let me just think, I'm trying to think of which ones have women in them. And I was like, oh no, well, two of them do actually, but for the most part, they don't. And he just kind of missed the point, and I, you know, that he assumed that that would be the one that I was interested in. But I think, you know, there's something about women being out of the picture in those things that allows you as a sort of straight female voyeur to, to just... Uh, play, you know, be a voyeur and not be compromised in any way by female inclusion. And that, and and whereas in the majority of culture, if you're watching it, you know, you know, women aren't getting, yeah, often aren't getting a nice, having a nice time. Or you, you know, as a woman watching sex scenes in films or watching any kind of perverse things, ain't no way that's real, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and I so I find that quite fascinating. In and that's maybe part of what muscle bound's about, but. Because, yeah, we might have some queasiness about the politics of those films now, and certainly any, most of the female characters might be like fridged and sort of like killed off mm. for the uh, story arc of the male. But you're suggesting at least that actually that's quite useful as a straight female to watch that because there is this guilt-free objectification of the male characters. Yeah, I don't even know. It's not so much that it's guilt-free, it's just that it's... Um, it allow it's not guilt free mm. just compromise free I guess okay. um, you know women get fridged all the time now you know it's still I think it's, there's gender relations in films and the way sex is represented obviously it's sort of there's developments and there's been quite a significant shift in, you know, in recent years but still in mainstream films that kind of gender dynamic is still really crap and there's something, you know, I, when I, I gave a talk on this subject, but just on kind of bodybuilders in bondage scenes, 
um, a couple of years ago at the Catalyst Club and in the Q&A afterwards a couple of people were quite offended and, they were, and someone was like how can you say this you know as a feminist how do you feel about this this sort of objectification and I was like I think it's just fine to objectify people <laughs> we all objectify people all the time the only the only dangerous thing becomes when someone is objectifying you at the expense of all of your other qualities and character and that's what happens to women very often that's what happens to men far less often and in these kind of films where men are openly inviting objectification purely for the narrative function of then at some later point in the film re-establishing their own male dominance their own masculine dominance it's like hey if you're setting it up i'm just going to take you at face value you <laughs> yeah. know? and there's something quite fun about that and there's something it feels like a it feel i mean obviously as a young child i didn't realize that that was why why i was so interested in it and and maybe you know i just love watching muscly men being tortured you know i just really really just like that. it so so yeah and 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 i think i was really interested in that before i saw these films maybe as well yeah so in that sense, I don't want to kind of create a sort of, you know, critical narrative to explain it away. I think it's just, you know, but I certainly think that um, in, a, in, a, in a genre where women are so usually demeaned, to remove women from the equation is um, just allows for, yeah, good, uh, nice time. You, 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 can be the, you can be the woman in that scene outside watching, you yeah. know. It seems to me that it's really pleasing, and you've spoken to a few of the stars, that when the leads of those films are, for want of a better phrase, in on the joke, that they're, they're aware of the ridiculousness, they're, they're, they're aware, and they're not taking it too seriously, which does sound like damning with fake praise, I don't necessarily mean it like that, <laughs> but who, in your opinion, is very much in on the joke that they, 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 they are having fun with their own films, they know what the politics are, they, uh, they know what the expansive and limitations are? That is a it's an jolly, unfair question. It's um, an interesting question. I think that, to be honest, I think at that particular time in the early 80s, um, whether or not they were... You know, I like to think that Arnold Schwarzenegger is in on the joke. Um, but... I think Dolph is maybe too earnest. Uh, but I, but at that time, you know, this kind of weird time in history where there's this huge resurgence of physical culture, this very kind of self-obsessed era of Reagan and Thatcher and this sort of capitalist, uh, you know, individualism. I think that it was all this sort of hyper-macho thing was you know in, the, in these particular films were kind of taken at face value that's what's so interesting about them and when you see this sort of new um, phase of these kind of films starting in the 21st century which began with Gladiator in 2000 Gladiator is very careful it wanted to kind of recreate that sort of genre but there is no there are no scenes in it which can be misconstrued as you know homoerotic there is no bearing of flesh so dull I returned it, I was so angry about it. And I bought it from a charity shop, so that's saying something. Do you think that <laughs> that might be at the behest of the leading man? I, I think there's just a lot more of a... I, mean, I think the trouble is that the, these, all those films of the 80s and the early ones from the 50s were very much jumped on and appropriated by gay culture, and, and rightly so, because it's so glaringly homoerotic. 
And so for that reason, I think it either has to be knowing or it has to avoid, you know, if it really wants to be a kind of sort of macho sort of thing, then it has to avoid that. So, I mean, in films like Troy with uh, Brad Pitt, he, he obviously, he shows a lot more flesh in that and there's um, this kind of undercurrent of, you know, whether his friend or cousin... I can't remember the name of the guy. I was recently reading the Iliad to Swat Up, but it just wasn't as interesting as the Brad Pitt version, you know? Really went on for a long time. So uh, I think, and Spartacus, you know, there's this great TV series um, called Spartacus, one to four four series. It's the only thing that now has a similar kind of feel to those films of the 80s. And it's done so in a very kind of camp knowing way, you know, it really glorifies in this, you know, and it's very kind of, it, it it is sort of, putting forward this particular kind of masculinity so in that sense it's not like it's not a joke but it does but it's sort of tongue-in-cheek it knows it knows that it's kind of uh creating something sort of sexy and that there's a lot of male naked bodies together i feel very much like uh for my own purposes that we're on the the first minute of this conversation (laughs) but actually on the last minute on the conversation really and i'm gonna have to reluctantly begin to tie things up so i guess um if one were to have a primer of stuff that they were going to watch before coming to see Musclebound, uh, obviously they could come in unprepared and not know what the hell they're letting themselves in for. But what would be a good portfolio of things for them to watch before coming to see Ooh, Musclebound? Yeah, excellent question. Well, I would begin with Masters of the Universe, the 1987 film starring Dolph Lundgren. Rewatched it the other day. Oh. So lovely. Um, and of course, Conan the Barbarian, 1982 film. And Red Scorpion featuring Dolph Lundgren. Wonderful. There's a good variety of torture scenes in there. Needle torture, branding, uh, extra oiled up as well, yeah. Dolph is. And uh, oh, let's see. I guess I find, I find Sylvester Stallone a bit too scrawny. So although he is good in the Rambo films and he has some good torture scenes, it's, um, yeah, not so... Not, uh, I'd stick with Dolph and Arnold, to be honest. Any film starring Dolph Lundgren in the yeah. 1980s and to mid-90s is going to be pretty damn good. Now that's interesting. You say in the 80s and the Tim in the 90s. Is it in any way close to a current-day equal? Can you get your muscle-bound torture porn in any sort of vessel nowadays? Um, the only way is this TV series Spartacus, and I have, and that it really is great, and it and it is, um, and it, and like I say, it really kind of glorifies on that on the male physique in and the, and its capacity for pain. <laughs> In a way that hasn't been done since the kind of since macho sort of films really wanted to get away from the sort of um, homoerotic association. So, yeah, it's on Netflix. Series one and two in, in particular, fine, fine, fair, and also unusually, it's quite feminist as well. You know, there are a lot of storylines in that show to do with women and to do with sexual assault and so on that don't just gloss over it and that really give voice to the the um you know the sort of complexities of these things which makes it really quite rare and 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 a much, much more of a balanced thing so i can watch that for for my own kind of perverse interests but also it's just genuinely interesting and intelligent and um and i don't have to think so okay rosie you don't have to pretend not to be a feminist when you watch this <laughs> so uh rosie carrick 
thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. This has been the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast. Presented by Andrew Allen. Produced by Michelle Donkin. Music is Chapstick by Everett Armand. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our website is castironbrighton.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.